This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer. Today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Dr. Patricia Eiffel, who is a professor in radiation oncology at the MD Anderson Cancer Center, where she has been for the past 30 years. She has published numerable articles, uh, over 200 peer-reviewed uh, publications. She has her own uh, textbook called uh, Gynecologic Radiation Oncology, a Practical Guideline, and she has also served on many national and international boards and committees, and she's a past president and chair of the Board of Astro and is currently serving on the board of the International Gynecologic Cancer Society. Welcome, Patricia. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. We're going to be uh, speaking today on the subject of uh, updates in radiotherapy for vulvar cancer. And I was wondering if you could just provide a brief description of some of the major changes with regards to the modalities and the techniques of radiotherapy in the past decade for vulvar cancer. Yeah, of course, there's been really several periods of rapid change in the understanding of the role of radiation therapy and the techniques that we use uh, dating back to my residency when I was told there was no role for radiation therapy in vulvar cancer, and we now know that's really not true. I think in recent times, um, we have really been addressing concerns about the morbidity, the side effects of radiation therapy. And there are a couple of things that we have learned and techniques that have been developed. Uh, in particularly, I think, re in particular recently, I think the development of IR IMRT techniques have been a big change um, in a couple of ways. They have, when optimally applied allowed us to spare normal tissues, particularly uninvolved skin, and reduce the amount of skin reaction and both the acute and late morbidity for patients. Uh, and I think that's really important. It has, however, also increased the complexity of treatment for this rare disease, and we do see problems sometimes when um, practitioners who don't have a lot of experience with vulvar cancer try to apply IMRT, so it has to be uh, handled with care. The other thing that that I have recognized over the past decade that I think is extremely important and that is underappreciated, I believe, is the importance of infection in the acute uh, side effects of radiation therapy. Uh, erythema and moist esquamation that are often just attributed to radiation cell therapy itself are frequent, frequently caused by superinfection with candida and bacteria. And we find that we can continue treating patients and their reactions improve if we treat those uh, effectively. So I think that's a really important element to getting radiation therapy completed in a short period of time so that it's most effective. And uh, Patricia, you mentioned IMRT, Intensity Modulated Radiation Therapy. Yes. For our international audience, is this a modality that is available globally or is this only available in the most um, you know, referral centers? That's a good point. It's, it is expensive. It's very expensive in the United States. Interestingly, in some um, more challenging environments, it's used. IMRT is extensively used in some areas of India, for example, and it's much less expensive there. So it's partly a function of how much one charges for it. Um, it is more labor-intensive uh, to be applied well. It takes me a couple of hours, um, almost as long as one of your surgeries, to do the contouring and the preparatory work uh, for good IMRT. Uh, so it's, it is expensive, but it also requires a level of training that's not available everywhere, even in the United States. And so that's an issue. Even people who have IMRT 
may not be trained to do IMRT for vulvar cancer, and that's important so, to so, so the training is definitely key yeah. in, uh, in the success of the, of the therapy. Yes. Now, focusing on now some of the basic prognostic factors for vulvar cancer, um, you know, we've known about HPV status. I uh, was wondering if you can just give us a little bit more about with regards to the issues of lichen sclerosis or nodal status, right. and how do you view this in terms of your approach to patient care? Right. Well, there are some well-established risk factors. Um, we know that close margins, for example, and this has been a controversial area, how close is too close, but um, that that is a risk factor for local recurrence. Um, nodal involvement is something that we know drives the use of radiation therapy because there's a randomized trial that show, has shown the benefit of radiation therapy. It is a prognostic indicator in general. Um, nodal recurrence particularly in a previously irradiated patient, is almost always lethal. And that's a reason it's so important to have high-quality radiotherapy and understand what dose and volume need to be treated. Um, the question of HPV and lichen sclerosis is one that's developing now. I think we don't entirely know what the, the prognostic implications are. Um, as you know, vulvar cancer tends to fall into two groups, a younger population that tend to have HPV related disease, and seem to respond in a fashion similar to other HPV-related cancers in the cervix or head and neck and whatever. Um, the, the second group of patients are a pa group that, that uh, do not have HPV that tend to have P53 mutations occurs in older patients and often in the setting of lichen sclerosis. There's a growing body of evidence that these patients have more resistant tumors, that they're more likely to recur in the radiation field, which is quite unusual, except for massive tumors in the HPV-related cancers. Um, and I think there's there's going to be a lot of work in this area trying to define this as a prognostic factor and how to respond to it in the future. You mentioned nodal status, and obviously this is a, a very broad uh, topic as it pertains to vulvar cancer. And we have um, seen confirmations from prospective trials uh, on the feasibility and the safety of sentinel lymph node mapping. Mm -hmm. um, as it pertains to uh, sentinel lymph node mapping and its current role in vulvar cancer, as opposed to a full lymph node dissection. Um, how, how do you view your approach to patients based on whether the patient has a positive sentinel lymph node versus a negative uh, sentinel lymph node in the setting of a patient uh, presenting with primary vulvar cancer? Right, so I think um, the advent of sentinel node has been very helpful because it's decreased the morbidity of the surgery, which actually was the largest source of, of morbidity from management of the groin uh, in the past. Uh, and when there's a negative sentinel lymph node, as we know from the groin studies and other studies, there's a low probability of recurrence in the groin. It's not zero. And that's why in some cases, particularly cases that have local factors that suggest a high risk of nodal uh, involvement, despite a negative sentinel node, we sometimes advocate um, monitoring of the patient with ultrasound because I believe the very poor prognosis of patients with groin failures in the past, unirradiated groin failures, has been because they've been massive by the time they were detected. And we have had a number of patients who have had very early recurrences detected and who were cured. So I think it's important to be sure um, that the patients don't have a false uh, negative from that. In patients who have a positive sentinel node, I think that's more challenging. And 
Um, I think we know that the Groins 5 study in an auxiliary analysis suggested that patients who had more than, I think, a two millimeter focus of disease in the node had a disturbingly high rate of recurrence in the groin despite postoperative radiation therapy. And I've some to some extent struggle to understand that because it runs counter to everything we understand about the ability of radiation to control microscopic disease and with our own experience in which we find it very rare to see infield recurrences um, in patients who have no gross disease in the groin. I have suspected, and I think we need to learn more about it, that one factor that could have contributed to that is that when we see recurrences from the outside, uh, in radiation fields, and we look back at the imaging after the patient had a dissection, we almost always find that there was a rigid residual node left behind. And so I think that if one is going to use the approach, which we still do, of treating patients following the detection of a sentinel node, it's very important to have adequate imaging to determine that there is no residual disease. Even a six, seven millimeter node that's in the general sentinel location that's adjacent to the area where you typically see nodes, we boost to a higher dose. And there were no boosts, as far as I know, given beyond the basic dose of 45 gray in the groin study. It'd be interesting if there were imaging to go back and look at those patients who had recurrence and see if you could identify where the residual disease was. So that you bring up a very interesting point, important point, because often it comes up in discussion as to whether the surgeon, having identified a positive sentinel lymph node, should they go back and perform a full lymph node dissection, uh, potentially to prevent this type of scenario? Right. right. And um, I think the key, there's, there's no doubt in my mind, we have almost 100% control rate of modest-sized gross disease with radiation therapy if you give at least a dose of 60 to 65 gray to the gross, any gross nodes, any, any heavily involved nodes. So the decision really depends on whether you're able to determine whether any disease was left behind, whether any nodes were left behind. If you have pre-operative imaging, which I personally think should be obtained in any patient with known invasive cancer, and you see two or three one-centimeter nodes and only one was removed, you know that there's residual gross disease there and you have to go to a higher dose of radiation. If you what we do is we look at the planning CT scan that's done after surgery, and we very carefully look to see, okay, has this node been removed? Has this node been removed? Are, is there any evidence of gross lymphadenophilia left behind? And then we give an additional dose to that patient. If there's no imaging and you have a huge seroma, then sometimes you have to make a decision. But in general, I think that radiating after a sentinel node to the dose that's required, even to a higher dose, is probably less morbid than doing a full node dissection and then giving radiation, which is attended with a much higher risk of lymphedema. So you have to balance those things. If you aren't in a setting where you think you can determine whether there's gross disease left behind, then maybe you should do an additional dissection. Mm -hmm. We don't. And then to that point also, um, what about the patient that comes in with multiple positive sentinel lymph nodes? Do you change your approach in that patient population? Well, of course, we would, again, look very carefully for additional disease because you'd be uh, concerned that there was uh, disease left behind. We probably would go to a somewhat higher dose just as our sort of basic dose for microscopic disease. 
perhaps to 50 gray instead of 45 gray, but we would be very careful. If there's extra capsular extension, we always go to a higher dose. That almost certainly requires on the order of 60 gray um, and is a reason why you want to be careful about doing big node dissections too because if we have to treat almost the same dose that we treat for gross disease and we have extra capsular extension right now, we believe the whole operative bed has to be treated to high dose and that winds up being much more morbid. So these factors need to be balanced. It really requires very close multidisciplinary collaboration. As you know, we talk extensively about these patients before they even have the surgery. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I think that's important. The other thing to appreciate is that in patients who are known to have gross disease up front, we have found that we do very well with radiation alone if an adequate dose is given, and with much, much less morbidity than if you try to remove all the gross disease and then treat afterwards. Uh, and particularly in patients who have uh, two or three, uh, two centimeter nodes and have a huge vulvar primary, there probably isn't much logic to taking out a two centimeter node when what's really gonna be the problem in our experience is controlling the six centimeter primary. Uh, and so, again, a, a good, fruitful discussion between the surgeon and the radiation oncologist at every step and decision point really helps to achieve the most effective and least morbid combination of treatments. So that uh, brings up an interesting point with regards to the um, suggestion of radiation alone. Is there any particular node size that will be an exclusion criteria for this approach? So it's a really interesting question because the we have, in except in patients who are extremely thin, where we worry a little bit more about the dose to skin, and that's a consideration as well, a one to two centimeter node is pretty easy for us to control. Um, when you start getting up to larger nodes, three or four centimeters, we do pretty well with those too, particularly if it's a, and here, most of the patients are obese, so you can even treat a, a tumor that size without treating too much skin. The challenge is whether it really helps to resect the node because nodes that size almost always have extra capsular extension, and then you still have to go to 60 or 64 gray. And if they get even larger than that, then you have vascular involvement. You wind up having a large dissection. And one of the things that can cause a real problem, we found, is if a big node dissection is done and it doesn't heal, and you wind up with a large seroma or a wound infection or some other unfortunate circumstance that delays radiation therapy. Because in our experience, the few infield recurrences we've had have tended to be in patients who, whose radiation has started more than 56 days after the surgery. So that has to be a consideration in the mix as well, I think. And you, you spoke about the importance of imaging and, and uh, the importance of imaging in, in making a determination as to how to proceed with, uh, with therapy. In, in your practice, what is the ideal imaging that you would obtain in a patient that you're about to uh, make a recommendation on treatment? I think with respect to the groins, a CT is fine because it'll tell you whether there are large nodes in concerning locations um, or not. With regard to the primary, as you know, imaging, you know, physical exam is often uh, the most important uh, diagnostic or evaluation. But um, MRI can be quite helpful. PET is notorious for false positives. 
and for not giving a very accurate sense, particularly of the extent of invasive disease. We see patients who have superinfection, which is common, uh, and that may overestimate the extent. And I've also seen patients where the tumor wasn't detected. Um, I've seen MRIs where the tumor wasn't detected. And we've had patients referred to us for unknown primaries who had MRIs and nobody had found the lesion. So nothing can really replace a very good physical exam, sometimes an exam under anesthesia for evaluation of the extent of the primary, and in particular, um, how close it comes to critical structures and whether, in fact, surgery would then be very morbid. Um, because what we don't like to do is have a big surgical procedure in the vulva that results in a positive margin at the rectum, and then you have to give a very high dose to a positive margin at the mm -hmm. rectum. So again, that multidisciplinary discussion is really critical. So then now jumping onto the subsequent question that I think is a, of uh, very high importance, the issue of concurrent chemotherapy. Mm. Um, obviously, we've had uh, trials in cervix for the benefits of chemotherapy and radiation. Um, your thoughts with regards to adding chemotherapy to the standard regimens of radiation therapy for vulvar cancer? Yeah, of course, we don't have any level one data specific to vulvar cancer. There are a couple of big data studies that have suggested that patients who get chemotherapy have a better outcome. But of course, those are always a little problematic because uh, there's a bias inherent in that, particularly in an elderly population where patients who are um, have more comorbid problems may not be getting the chemotherapy. I think particularly for the HPV positive cancers, the ones in young cancers, uh, in young patients, the, the arguments based on extrapolation from other studies are compelling. Almost every HPV-related squamous carcinoma that we know of, other than vulvar cancer perhaps, has uh, had important studies that have demonstrated the value of concurrent chemotherapy with radiation. I'm talking about um, pharyngeal ca cancers in head and neck, uh, where that's been amply demonstrated in huge meta-analyses. Of course, cervix cancer, anal cancer, uh, many of which are HPV positive, and it'd be hard to believe that vulvar cancer would be an exception. I think for the HPV negative cancers, it's more difficult for a couple of reasons. One is that we don't have the same compelling evidence, although concurrent chemotherapy has been useful in a lot of non-HPV-related cancers, too. The other is that they tend to be elderly patients for whom chemotherapy may pose a greater difficulty in terms of morbidity to the patient. Um, we certainly have cured patients with radiation alone, and I don't think radiation should be withheld if chemotherapy is felt to be um, contraindicated because of comorbid uh, issues. But in view of the fact that there's growing evidence that the patients with non-HPV-related cancers are, if anything, more difficult to control with radiation, it's difficult to withhold concurrent chemotherapy in those patients unless there's a compelling reason not to give it. Um, so for those reasons, we tend we tend to use it. And when you do recommend uh, chemotherapy, I presume is single-agent cisplatinum? Yes. Although, you know, some would argue there are some practitioners who extrapolate from the anal cancer experience to give a 5-FU in cisplatinum or even 5-FU in mitomycin, which in my experience tends to have a lot more side effects. Um, but I think in the U.S., probably just because it's what's used for so many 2-IN cancers and it's it's been demonstrated to work for other HPV-related cancers. We tend to just use cisplatinum and usually weekly cisplatinum. And recently we learned about the benefits of additional chemotherapy 
after radiation and chemotherapy for uterine cancer. Is there any patient population for vulvar cancer uh, for whom you're recommending additional chemotherapy having completed the radiation treatment? Yeah, uh, not at this point. I think even for uterine cancer, that's an evolving story. But um, as yet, there is no setting in which post-adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy has been proven to be of benefit in HPV-related cancers. It's been studied extensively in head and neck cancer and in several other sites. There is an ongoing study in cervix cancer, which has actually been closed, but we're waiting for the results of it, um, that is looking at post-radiation chemotherapy, post-chemoradiation chemotherapy for locally advanced cervix cancer, and it's called the Outback Study. Maybe our thoughts would be shifted if that turned out to be a positive study, but we don't have results of that yet. And given the preponderance of evidence not supporting its use in most mm-hmm. settings, uh, I, I wouldn't advocate it. Now, let's talk about uh, post-treatment and post-treatment surveillance. What is your routine approach once your patient has completed uh, her uh, chemotherapy and radiation or radiation alone for vulvar cancer? Uh, what is your routine follow-up in terms of examinations and in terms of imaging? Well, we see patients every three months or so for the first. Usually we see patients at about one month just to evaluate how their acute reaction is resolving. And if they have a, a substantial reaction, we'll call them in the interim to see how they're doing. Because during that first couple of weeks, again, superinfection with yeast and bacteria can be a problem. And we can often help them a great deal by intervening. Um, after that, you're thinking more about recurrence, and uh, you do want to follow them closely during the early period of time. There is potentially still a salvage maneuver in some patients uh, who have a localized recurrence in the vulva, uh, although uh, it's usually a bad sign in a patient who's had radiation therapy uh, because they often had advanced disease to start with. In the groin, if the groin has been irradiated, it's almost impossible to salvage a local recurrence. So we aren't aggressive about monitoring that, um, but perhaps an imaging at some point in time just to reassure the patient may be worthwhile. Um, The main thing is to prevent a recurrence up front. And if it does happen, if you do have um, an inguinal uh, nodal metastasis, uh, what What is your approach or recommendation? Do you routinely uh, um, su- suggest a surgical resection and then treatment or proceed with definitive therapy if the patient hasn't had previous radiation? If they haven't had previous irradiation, I think you address it the same way you would address a patient up front who has uh, nodal disease. You assess what the morbidity is going to be of combined treatment versus radiation alone and the probability of control and then you treat accordingly. So I think it's no different than when you see a patient up front. The key is to detect it early because once it's advanced, it's more difficult with either modality. I see. And um, what, what do you see as the, the most important unanswered questions today as it pertains to radiation therapy and vulvar cancer? I think... There are two things. Local recurrence is the biggest issue um, for us, and it's partly because we treat massive cancers often. But uh, one is what are the risk factors currently for infield local recurrence for vulvar cancers, and is there something that we can do to prevent those? 
um, either by adding different concurrent regimens or giving a higher dose or shifting the way we combine modalities. But that also comes to the other thing that I think is really important, and that is how can we teach radiation oncologists to give optimal treatment for vulvar cancer and or to know when to refer the patient if they aren't sufficiently skilled to treat it optimally. It, there's there's no, uh, no practitioner should be embarrassed to say that they don't feel comfortable treating this very rare disease. Um, and uh, that's one reason we wrote our book was to try to provide some guidance, but that alone is not enough. And I think it's, it's important to um, teach more effectively through groups like the IGCS and, and other uh, opportunities for teaching the techniques for contouring and for administration of treatment, um, many of which are very specific to vulvar cancer. Well, Patricia, has been uh, absolutely a pleasure speaking with you. Uh, are there any closing remarks you'd like to make for our audience? No, I don't think so. I think we've covered a lot of ground in a short period of time. Uh, no. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This is Dr. Pedro Ramirez, Editor-in-Chief of the International Journal of Gynecological Cancer, speaking with Dr. Patricia Eiffel.